The following recording is a presentation of the Berean Baptist Church of Rohnert Park, California, and of Pastor Val Mark Smith. We are an independent Baptist congregation committed to the accurate presentation of the historical doctrines of the faith. We welcome your visit to our services anytime here in the Rohnert Park area. All right, this evening I, I need you to get on your theological thinking caps a little bit here for the sermon tonight. Uh, don't let me lose you. Uh, don't get behind me here. Uh, we're going to talk about some things that are extremely important. As I said this morning at the end of the, uh, the message, these are the kinds of sermons that I enjoy the most preaching. Uh, this is to get down in what I call the nuts and bolts of how that salvation works and how that what Christ did for us. I, everybody needs to know that Christ died on the cross to save us from our sins. No doubt we need to know that. We do need to know that we're sinners. And we went uh, in our forum class today, we went over essentials of the gospel, things that must be known. But I don't think it's enough for us to stop there. I think that we need to know how this was developed and what did God do in eternity past and how does he bring it about? What are the Old Testament sacrifices? What are those for? What are they like? What do they say about Christ? And that helps us to understand in a much, much better way what Christ did for us in our redemption. Now, I'd like you to open your Bibles to Leviticus chapter 4. And this evening is the sixth and the final message on the sin offering, which pictures Christ as the one who bore our sins, that he takes away the guilt of sinners and their obligation to punishment. He is an offering for sin that reconciles us to God. Now, in the past few messages, we've concentrated on the mechanics of the offering, how that it uh, reconciles us to God because of the sin nature. Sin is universal. The sin nature is inherent in every person. We receive that through the fall of Adam, who stood representative of all of humanity. None of us is guilty of the same sin that Adam committed, not the original sin that he committed, because none of us ate of the forbidden fruit. None of us were in the Garden of Eden. But Adam in the Garden was a trial for entire humanity. And we need not complain that we didn't have the opportunity to do this, that we weren't in the Garden, and we should have been able to make the choice ourselves. Because the omnipotent, omniscient creator knew exactly what his creatures would do. He created them. He's, uh, as I said, omniscient, so he knows what they will do. Adam was in the garden in the pre-fallen state. That is, he was there with no sin. He was innocent. And putting another person in Adam's place to go through the same trial that Adam went through does not mean that there's anybody that would act more righteously than he did. Obviously, none of us could act more righteously than Adam because we are all sinners because of that fall. But had God put one of us in a pre-fallen state, if we were the ones that were created first and put into the Garden of Eden, we would have done exactly what Adam did. So God the Creator knew what Adam would do, and so before he ever created man, he had a plan that was in place to redeem fallen man. And it wasn't a contingency plan that he put there and said, well, if this happens, this is what I'll do. No, God knew from the beginning that this was certain to happen. And so he had a plan in place for what was certain to happen. And so the covenant of redemption between the Father and the Son is an eternal plan. Although 
Adam's choice was a choice that was made in time, and Adam's choice was the one that he freely made, yet it all works within the plan of God. And so because of Adam's fall, God considers all men to be sinful even before we sin. Isn't that something? We are sinful even before we sin, and that's because we have a sinful nature. And that nature is defiling. Something has to be done with it, as well as individual sins, before we can be reconciled to God. Well, since we've been a long time in this third part of the outline, and we skipped a couple of weeks from last week because Brother Wong was here, I just want to refresh you on the different points that we've covered thus far. First, we looked at the order of the offerings. In the chronological order of the five offerings, the sin offering is first. But when we're introduced to this in Leviticus, the first part of Leviticus, it's the burnt offering that comes first, but that's not the order of the application of offerings. First has to come the offering for sins, and that's because there's no one who can approach God without their sins covered and atoned. The good works of sanctification that are pictured in these other offerings and the sweet savor offerings, those cannot come first because sanctification is not possible before the representative work of justification. And so thus the non-sweet savor must precede sweet savor offerings. Then secondly, we looked at the acknowledgement of sin. And in that part, we discussed the sin nature, which is the key to the problem of our total inability. That there isn't anything that's good in the sin nature. We're radically depraved. All of our faculties are stained with sin, resulting in the inability to do anything good. Nothing good arises out of the human heart. The radical depravity of man is proved in the Scriptures. It's proved by Jesus' teachings about the wickedness of the human heart. It's proved by Jeremiah in the Old Testament who said, "...the heart is deceitfully wicked." above all things. And then it's proved by the Apostle Paul in numerous passages such as Romans 1 through 3 and Ephesians chapter 2 where Paul accentuates the problem by saying that we are dead in trespasses and sin. So the sinful nature can never produce anything that's good and that's the reason that man's will, man's will, will never lead him to repentance and faith. We must be born again according to the will of God. That's what John wrote in John chapter 1, verses 12 and 13. Thirdly, we've been looking at the, the categories of sinners, and the categories are in Leviticus 4, and they prove the universality of sin. The first to offer an offering is the priest. That is, he offers for himself. He must offer for his own sins before he can offer for the sins of others. Next in the passage comes the sins of society. That is, Israel as a nation, as a people. And every nation has its own society with its social system. Then comes the sins of rulers. And then lastly, the chapter deals with the sins of individuals. So it's not enough for us to admit society sins and rulers sin. Now we've got to come down to the place where we realize we ourselves as individuals are sinners against God and we need a sin offering in order to reconcile us to God. So the categories that we see in chapter 4 are intended to show the universality of sin. All have sinned and come short of the glory of God. None seek God because it's not in our nature to do so. Well, this evening we're ready for the final two parts of this outline. 
And fourthly, what I want to talk to you about this evening is the absolution of the sinner. The absolution of the sinner. Now, the design of the sacrifice is to take care of the sin nature. By implication, the human nature always produces sin. There's nothing that can come from it that's acceptable with God. And while the sin offering doesn't deal with individual sins, that's what we're going to study next with the trespass offering. This was not, does not deal with individual sins, but it does deal with the collection of sin. That is, sin in general terms. So what's to be done about sin? It can't remain chargeable to us because then we would never be reconciled to God. Now, at this point, we need to pause for just a moment to refresh ourselves on the design of this offering in relation to the atonement. Now, we look at sweet savor offerings that we talked about uh, in the beginning of these messages. Those deal with atonement, but not atonement in the way that we usually use the term. Atonement is usually used in terms of a covering for sin. And with the uh, sin offering, of course, that's the way that it's used. The sweet savor offerings are not about sin. They refer to Christ's perfect life, and we have peace with God based upon the merits of his perfect life. But the non-sweet savor offerings reflect the usual view that we have of the atonement, that man is charged with crimes against the holy God, and those crimes must be paid. That there's a legal obligation under God's law, and that God will never set aside that law for anyone, because God is perfectly just. And he will not allow anyone to be pardoned without a payment for sin. And so it was the atoning work of the cross to provide the legal basis upon which we could be freed from sin's penalty. And since Christ paid that penalty by acting as a substitute offender, all for whom that penalty is paid are set free from the law's condemnation. Sin must be absolved. Now, if you look up absolve in the dictionary, one of the meanings is to be let off the hook. And I don't want to be cavalier about what I'm saying here, but in very simple layman's terms, that's what happens. We are let off the hook for sin so that we are not personally responsible to pay the price of it. But the payment for sin is paid by another that acts on our behalf. Now, absolution is a doctrine that has an intense amount of, of, of argument about it. In Roman Catholicism, it is the priest that gives absolution for the sinner on the behalf of God. And so he prescribes penance for sinners. Not repentance, but penance, in which the offender is given acts of contrition in exchange for the forgiveness of sins. So in other words, what they have is a barter system. You give me this, I'll give you that. You pay me this, I'll give you the forgiveness for your sins. Now, penance may include different acts of worship, like the repetition of the rosary and saying the Our Fathers of the Lord's Prayer. It's the Hail Marys, calling upon Mary for intercession. It can be physical acts, such as crawling on hands and knees and self-flagellation and some other things that you probably haven't even heard of and maybe are not as much use today. At the Vatican in Rome, there is the Scala Sancta. That means the holy stairs. 
They're supposed to be the stairs that Jesus ascended when he went up to Pilate's judgment hall, that Jesus went up these steps. And supposedly, they say in the 4th century, these steps were brought to Rome. And I want you to listen to this description of them from Wikipedia, which is the design, uh, divinely inspired web encyclopedia. And uh, Wikipedia says this, In the Roman Catholic Church, a plenary indulgence, and the word plenary means full, a full, a full indulgence. A plenary and full uh, indulgence has been conceded for climbing the stairs on the knees. Pope Pius VII on 2nd September 1817 granted those who ascend the stairs in the prescribed manner an indulgence of nine years for every step. Finally, Pope St. Pius X on the 26th of February 1908 conceded a plenary indulgence as often as the stairs are devoutly ascended after confession and holy communion. Martin Luther climbed these steps on his knees in 1510. As he did so, he repeated the Our Father on each step. It was said by doing this work, one could redeem a soul from purgatory. But when Luther arrived at the top, he could not suppress his doubt. Who knows whether this is true? Charles Dickens after visiting the Scala Sancta in 1845, wrote, I never in my life saw anything at once so ridiculous and so unpleasant as this sight. He described the scene of pilgrims ascending the staircase on their knees as a dangerous reliance on outward observances. So there's one way that you can get a soul out of purgatory. Go and climb these stairs on your hands and your knees. In my opinion, being a Catholic is purgatory enough. Roman Catholics also attach a monetary value to sin. That is, if a corresponding price is paid, then sins can be forgiven and they consider the debt to be paid. And that was their method of financing one of the richest organizations in the world. It was payments for debts of sin that built... St. Peter's Basilica in Rome, and many of the elaborate cathedrals throughout the world. So the difference in the Bible's teaching of atonement and the Roman Catholic teaching of atonement is that Christ paid our sin debt in full, that there isn't anything for us to pay. The believer does not have to pay anything because Christ fully satisfied the Father. And we are absolved from sin according to his priestly payment, not ours. And so thus we're left off to let off the hook for punishment. We are responsible for sin. Each of us is. We've, we've done the crime, so we're responsible. We have a nature that desires sin, but we don't have the ability to pay that debt with a currency that God will accept. And that's Bitcoin and Ethereum and all those others included. You don't have a currency that God will accept. God doesn't trade in man's righteousness. His currency is only the merits of Christ's righteousness. So how do we get off the hook? If, if we, it's not because we don't deserve the punishment, because we all do. It's not because God overlooks the debt because it's impossible for us to pay. We are absolved from sin because there is a sin offering. There's someone who paid that penalty for us. 2 Corinthians 5.21 For he hath made him to be sin for us who knew no sin, that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. I notice the beginning of that verse. For he hath made him 
to be sin for us. Which begs the question by many, was Christ literally made a sinner? Well, no, not as someone who committed sin. The literal rendering of that would be exactly what we're talking about tonight, that he was made a sin offering for us. This is one of the greatest heresies of the Word of Faith movement. See, not only do they preach the heretical prosperity gospel, but they also say this. They say that it was necessary for Christ to go to hell in the three days that he was in the tomb in order to be purged from his sins. That is, he became a sinner. And so he had to suffer in hell to pay for his sins. Well, folks, that's wrong. Jesus did not become a sinner. He took the debt of sin on him. And the sin offering that we've just read about shows a very graphic picture of his rejection by the Father because of the burden that he bore of sin. And we're going to look at that part in just a few minutes. So all of the suffering that Christ did for sin was in that three hours that he hung on the cross. He didn't go into the literal fires of hell, but certainly this, God put an unimaginable amount of punishment on him in those three hours. And he was the sin bearer. He was not a sinner. Now the worth then of Christ's sacrifice, if he could do all that in three hours, then the worth of Christ's sacrifice is all important. Hebrews 10 verses 1 and 2 explains this. For the law, having a shadow of good things to come, and not the very image of the things can never with those sacrifice which they off, sacrifices which they offered year by year continually make the comers thereunto perfect. For then would they not have ceased to be offered? Because that the worshiper once purged should have no more conscience of sins. Now there the author is telling us that there is never an animal that could take away sin because an animal is not worth the value of a human soul. The sacrifices of the Old Testament were often repeated because they couldn't match the value of even one human soul. Now, they could only take away sin representatively. Now, you, you think for just a minute, imagine what it would mean if an animal could take away actual sin. That would mean that a man is worth no more than an animal. Now, when you hear animal act, act, uh, rights activists say things like, well, you know, animals are people too, and when it's a greater crime to kill a puppy than it is a human fetus, then you know that people have degraded to this level. They are below the level of animals. And so they believe the animal has a value that's equal to the human soul. Well, God knew the value of the human soul because he's the one who gave sacred life. And that life is so valuable to him that there is nothing but the perfect, infinite God who can pay the price of it. And so the value of Christ's life is worth more than the combined value of all human souls, which gives him the ability to satisfy the sin debt. You see, life is a, is a representation of God. The living soul is the image of God. And so only God is the one who can repair that image. Only the Creator, the one who gave life, can repair the image of God in that person. Now, I want to look at two aspects of the absolution of sin. The first is that Christ was an expiatory sacrifice. Now, expiatory is a theological term that many people are afraid of. All that stuff's too hard. Don't talk to us about these theological terms. And it is hard. Uh, it can be when you get it mixed up with 
another theological term, and unfortunately it's corollary. Propitiation is often mixed up with expiation, and these two terms are used interchangeably. And that's not only a layman's problem. That is often a theologian's problem, and it's seen in the great difficulty that Bible translators have when they come to these two concepts. Do we translate this scripture as expiation, or do we translate it as propitiation? And often they're very confused about which term they should use. And it's not likely that you're going to use either of these terms in your normal conversation, so it's not unusual for any Christian to look at this and say, I just don't understand what that is. I don't know what it is. Well, that's, that's fine. You've got to learn what it is. Um, these aren't terms that we use all of the time. But I will tell you this, if you're going to learn about the sacrifice of Christ and understand what Christ did, it's necessary to explain the nuances of how the atonement of Christ works. So it has two aspects to it. The first is expiation. Expiation begins with those two little words, ex. And that means, or that's a prefix, that means to remove. It means to take something away. And in this case, the thing that's removed is the guilt of the sinner. And so an expiatory sacrifice is an offering that removes guilt. Now a sweet savor offering would not expiate. Because that offering is about Christ's life. We're reconciled by the merits of Christ's perfect life. And there's no guilt of sin in his life. And so there can't be any expiation in a sweet savor offering. But the non-sweet savor, in the non-sweet savor, there is guilt. So first, the guilt of the sinner has to be taken away. And if you remember, very early on when we started discussing this, uh, talking about the Levitical law... There was no sin offering. Before the law was given, there was no sin offering. And that seems very strange. But all pre-law sacrifices were sweet savor sacrifices. And that's because the law had not yet been given, and so transgression had not yet been established. In Romans 5, verses 12 and 13, Paul wrote, Wherefore, as by one man sin entered into the world, and death by sin, and so death passed upon all men, for that all have sinned, for until the law, sin was in the world, but sin is not imputed when there is no law. Verse number 12 speaks of the transmission of the sin nature, and then in verse number 13 is the establishment of transgression. The law establishes that the sinner is guilty. Now we need to be very careful to note that the Bible does not say man was not a sinner before the law because he was. Verse 12 says that he was, and so therefore people died before the law was given. That's because they, they are sinners. Now, as an expiatory sacrifice, Christ justifies the sinner. There's a legal transaction that takes place in which the sinner is declared not guilty. And folks, that is a very crucial point. A sinner is not made righteous by justification. He is declared righteous. His justification has nothing to do with his morality his sanctification, that's going to take care of morality. So justification has nothing to do with making him righteous. It's to declare him righteous. And so in justification, the legal impediment to a person's freedom is, is taken away by the declaration that the sin debt has been satisfied. That is a legal procedure. And so thus there can't be a sin offering before the law is given because you can't have legal proceedings without the law. Now, we'll see more of expiation when we get into the trespass offering. 
Then the second aspect of the atonement is that Christ was a propitiatory sacrifice. 1 John 4.10 says, Herein is love, not that we loved God, but that He loved us, and sent His Son to be the propitiation for our sins. So His sacrifice was expiatory and propitiatory. Now what's the difference between those two? Well, propitiation deals with the resulting effect that expiation has on God. That is, because our guilt is taken away, God's attitude towards the sinner changes. Propitiation is the appeasement of God's wrath so that God can change from this position of enmity towards us to uh, a position of being for us. That's why we see the word pro. Pro means for. God is for us. He's no longer against us because of the transgression of the law. That's been taken away. So justice to the law has been satisfied in Christ and that changes God's disposition towards us. Propitiation should satisfy the argument of the extent of the atonement. If propitiation is satisfaction to God and God is for us, as Paul said in the reading that we had today, who can be against us? Who can charge anything to God's elect? There's no one. Certainly God doesn't. So all Christ, all that Christ died for changed from enmity to peace with God. That has to happen if God is propitiated. There isn't a reason for God to condemn a person that has the satisfaction of the law that's been made. So then, if Christ's death is expiatory, that is, it takes away our guilt, it is propitiatory in that it satisfies the wrath of God for our sins. And thirdly, we know it's substitutionary, that is, that Christ did this in our place then all for whom that is done must be reconciled or else Christ is ineffective and none of this works. And so therefore the only conclusion we can reach is that Christ died for those who are truly redeemed. That the atonement is not hypothetical. It completed exactly what God designed for it to do. Now finally then, the last part of this offering is to consider the abandonment of the Savior. A beautiful part of this offering that needs a New Testament explanation is found in verse 12 of chapter 4. Even the whole bullock shall he carry forth without the camp unto a clean place, where the ashes are poured out, and burn him on the wood with fire, where the ashes are poured out shall he be burnt. Now the sin offering is unusual compared to other offerings. This offering is not eaten. The animal is killed at the altar of the burnt offering, then the fat and the kidneys and the call above the liver are removed, and that is a token amount that's taken and burned there to show that God has a part in this sacrifice. Just that part is burned on the altar. Now we back up to verse number 8 in Leviticus 4, if you want to look in the Scriptures. Leviticus 4, verse number 8. And he shall take off from it, that is this animal, he shall take off from it all the fat of the bullock for the sin offering, the fat that covereth the inwards, and all the fat that is upon the inwards, and the two kidneys, and the fat that is upon them, which is by the flanks, and the call above the liver with the kidneys, it shall he take away as it was taken off from the bullock of the sacrifice of peace offerings. And the priest shall burn them upon the altar of the burnt offering, and the skin of the bullock, and all his flesh, with his head, and with his legs, and his inwards, and his dung, even the whole bullock shall he carry forth without the camp unto a clean place, where the ashes are poured out, 
and burn him on the wood with fire where the ashes are poured out, shall he be burned. If you wonder what the, uh, we read there, the call above the liver. If you wonder what the call above the liver, what does that refer to? That refers to the peritoneum. That's the membrane that covers the, the inward parts of, of the animal. Those like uh, Eric back there who routinely kill Bambi and gut her, uh, they're very familiar with this, aren't you, Eric? Uh, you know about this. So that part has to be removed. And that part was removed in the offering. It's burnt, and that's the part that goes up to God. Again, that symbolizes that God is a partaker of the offering. But the rest of the animal is not burned on that altar. Rather, the, the animal is taken and burned outside the camp. Burned outside the camp. Not on the altar, but taken outside the borders of the camp. So first the animal was taken to the altar. That represents the cross. And then most of the animal is taken away from the camp outside of the closure of the holy sanctuary of the tabernacle. It's away from the fellowship of the people that are encamped around, completely outside the boundaries of the tents that make up the camp of Israel. Now, we need to go to the New Testament, to Hebrews chapter 13, and we can put that letter A up there if you like, uh, so everybody catch up on that. In the New Testament, Hebrews chapter 13, if you'll turn there, let me comment on these words first from the cross as you're looking for that. The agonizing cry of Christ from the cross was, My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? On the cross, Christ experienced the abandonment in the Father of the Father. And in that moment when he expiated our sin, he took our sins upon him. And in that time, the Father could not fellowship with him. He had sin on him. And so the holiness of God can't fellowship with the awfulness of sin. And so the son was abandoned, he was forsaken, he was left alone as he suffered for sin. There was no fellowship with God. And so he can't be at the tabernacle, so to speak. There's no fellowship with his disciples, they've abandoned him too. So now, Jesus is an outsider to his father and to them, to his disciples. And so he must be outside the camp completely wasted, taken outside. And so for the first time in his life, in his, I should, I've started to say existence, but I want to throw you off because Christ has always been in existence. But for the first time in his life, he was cast off from everyone. This is the first time it happened in eternity because he'd never been cut off from his father. And so here he is hanging on the cross. He's been abandoned by God and man. And he is not sweet savor here. There's nothing sweet about this offering. Nothing sweet about what's pictured. He is not pleasing to God because he has sin on him. God hates sin. And there is not a more graphic picture of the way that God hates sin than to see this. Jesus dying on the cross all alone. Completely forsaken by everyone. Now Hebrews chapter 13 verses 10 to 14. It says, We have an altar whereof they have no right to eat which serve the tabernacle. For the bodies of those beasts whose blood is brought into the sanctuary by the high priest for sin are burned without the camp. Wherefore Jesus also, that he might sanctify the people with his own blood, suffered without the gate. Let us go forth therefore unto him without the camp, bearing his reproach. For here we have no continuing city, but we seek one to come. Now there the author of Hebrews is de describing exactly what we see in Leviticus chapter 4. 
And he makes the connection between the suffering of Christ and the Levitical sacrifice. Now we need to understand, and I'll repeat this many times as we go through other messages that are still to come, that it is the author's purpose in Hebrews to acquaint the audience with this fact that Jesus is not a departure from Old Testament Judaism. That Christianity is not a new religion. These two things are intimately connected. Now the truth is, either there should be no religion that is called Jewry, the Jewish religion, or no religion that's called Christianity. You can have one or the other. There shouldn't be both. Christians weren't even called Christians by God, as you well know. It was the enemies of the cross of Christ that called people Christians. And so they called them Christians because they didn't see what Christ did as a continuation of the Old Testament. It was not the fulfillment of its types. And so Christians were called a sect. They were despised because it appeared that they repudiated the law. But what did Jesus say about that? He said, think not that I am come to destroy the law or the prophets. I am not come to destroy, but to fulfill. Paul wrote, seeing it is one God which shall justify the circumcision by faith and the uncircumcision through faith, do we make void the law through faith? God forbid, yea, we establish the law. So true Israel is the Israel of faith, even as Father Abraham was justified by faith. It's not Israel of the law, but it's the Israel of the one that the law is intended to show. And so the author of Hebrews shows these people that he writes to that Christ is a better sacrifice than the Old Testament sacrifices. And so he speaks of the offering of Old Testament priests that are burned outside of the camp. And then he says in verse number 12, Wherefore, Jesus... And there he makes the connection. He's talking to people that he needs to convince that this is not a change in anything in God's plans. This is the fulfillment of the Old Testament. Wherefore, Jesus, in like manner, Jesus, just as you saw in Leviticus chapter 4, so did Jesus. And so New Testament Jewry is Jesus. Now what happened to Jesus? Well, common criminals weren't executed within the city walls. They're taken outside. Now, there's a controversy about the actual place where Christ was crucified. Uh, the popular belief is that he was crucified at Gordon's Calvary, what now is called Gordon's Calvary. That's the uh, uh, structure or the, uh, the, the hill, the, the rock that looks like a skull that's just a short distance away from the garden tomb. One of our favorite songs is the old rugged cross, that it starts out on a hill far away. The Bible doesn't say that Christ was crucified on a hill. I'm not saying that he wasn't. I'm just saying the Bible never says that he was. So Gordon's Calvary are, is the one, it's a hill, so some people think that's where Christ was crucified, but there are others that say that's not right. No, they took a, the criminals outside of the city walls, but not to a hill, but to a depression. And there in a depression, in a valley, outside of the city walls, they crucified. This is a hole in a small valley. Now that depression is covered over by years of building on top of it. And so today, if you go to Jerusalem and you want to see Jerusalem of Jesus' time, you have to go underground. The, the city that you see there today is, is a medieval city. It's not the city that was there 
uh, the same walls and so forth that was there when Jesus was here. And so there are tours that start near the western wall that go underneath the city to the excavations, and there you can actually see the walls that stood in the time of Jesus. An interesting thing is that when you go down there uh, on the pavement, you can still see the scratches where soldiers gambled and made their marks on the stones, just like you see in the Bible. Now, we don't know anything other about the crucifixion than this, that it's outside the city. And there isn't anybody who suggests that Christ was crucified inside of the city because this is an acknowledgement that Christ fulfilled Old Testament text. And so Hebrews confirms that the place of Christ's death is outside, and so he meets the symbolism of the sacrifice in Leviticus. And I can imagine that the disciples who met Jesus on the road to Emmaus heard this very thing from him. As Jesus explained all of the Old Testament scriptures concerning him, that's what the Bible says. He told them all things concerning himself that you find in those Old Testament scriptures. I doubt very seriously that he would have left this out. That he was killed outside of the city because that's what happens in Leviticus chapter 4. The animal is taken outside of the camp. Verse number 13 gives a New Testament response to this truth. Let us go forth therefore unto him without the camp, bearing his reproach. So the author says, let us bear the reproach of Christ. We are outcast. That's what Paul said. We're made an, we are made the off-scouring of the world, were his, was his terms. We have no continuing city here, he said. So we're thrown out. We are discarded by the world. But that doesn't matter to us. It doesn't matter if the world throws us out because our citizenship is elsewhere. Philippians 3.20 says, For our conversation, that is our citizenship, is in heaven, from whence also we look for the Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. So as Christians, we seek a city that is to come. Not one on this earth, but a city that is to come. That's Mount Zion. That's the heavenly Jerusalem, a place that is not built with man's hands. It's the city of God. And so the priest didn't know, and the people didn't know, that every time that they carried that sacrifice outside of the camp, so many times that they did this, that this is a picture of their Messiah suffering pain and rejection in order to reconcile them to God. Now this is just a marvelous thing to see Old and New Testaments joined the Old Testament texts come alive in light of New Testament revelation. Just as they say, Old Testament is Christ concealed, New Testament is Christ revealed. But there's still this division. There is Judaism and there is Christianity when there should be only one. There's only one, spiritual Israel, that is the people of God. And so Christians go to Jerusalem today. Why? Because that's our city too. The sights and everything that happened there make it our city. The Lord's going to return there. He'll set one foot on Mount Zion and he'll set the other foot on the Mount of Olives or rather one foot on the Temple Mount and the other on the Mount of Olives. And then Jerusalem will be one. National Israel, spiritual Israel, all united so there is neither Jew nor Gentile and all is Christ. Now secondly... And finally, in this study, the sin offering, the offering was burned to ashes. Nothing is left. The sins of God's people are completely consumed by the fire. 
Christ's life was fully expended. He gave all. Everything is given up that he might reconcile us to God. Why do we need the God-man? Why does he have to be both? Well, there, there are many reasons. First, he has no sin nature. And so um, he can offer for us because he was preserved in his birth from having a sin nature. And also critically important, he had to be man to suffer, but God to suffer infinitely. Crimes against God deserve endless punishment. And so there is no sin that can be paid for by, paid for by finite suffering. So we can never suffer enough to satisfy God. That makes the Roman Catholic system of penance untenable. It makes it loathsome to God because what it does is to devalue the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. You can't pay a penalty that will satisfy God. Only Jesus is capable of infinite suffering. And so that's the way that he suffered. Only God can do that. None of us can explain it. His suffering was the equivalent of eternity in hell for those who believe, all who believe. And the sacrifice of Christ was so complete that endless time cannot overcome infinite suffering. The human mind can't comprehend that. But it's true, and it must be true. So how is it then that God put such an intense fire under Christ that he could satisfy an eternity of suffering for as many sins as there are for as many people that are comprehended in the atonement. Each person, each sin that we commit, just one sin, deserves eternity in hell. So how can God take the aggregation of all these sins committed by so many people, how can he do that and Christ take care of that in three hours on the cross? That sounds like a question Thad will ask me. And I don't know. So Thad, before you ever get me in the hall out there, I don't know. There's no way to explain that. We just don't know how he did it, but he did it. He is the infinite God. Only the God-man can suffer that much. He must be infinite God packed into a human body. And so what's the result of the offering? God's judgment against believers is exhausted. They're set free because there's no legal case against them. They're justified and God is satisfied. Now, I love our song, Before the Throne of God Above. It says, Because the sinless Savior died, my sinful soul is counted free. For God the just is satisfied to look on Him and pardon me. Remember that when you look at Leviticus 4.4, Leviticus 4.15, 4.24, and 4.29. The sinners come... Israel come, all classes of sinners come, they place their hands on the head of an animal, and the sins are confessed. That's the symbolism of transference. The sin goes over to the substitute, the animal is killed, and the judgment of those sins is taken outside, and that animal is reduced to ashes. And so as an Israel stood there, and he watched those ashes blow away in the wind, he knew that the matter between him and God was settled. Ceremonially, his sins are taken away forever. And with those sins, the judgment of God against him is completely exhausted. God the just is satisfied to look on that sacrifice and pardon. Now, as a final note, there are some who say that all we need to be saved is to repent of the sin of unbelief. 
I've told you a dozen times, or more maybe, over these years that when I became the pastor, I threw away all the tracts that we had. We had lots of these that promoted that unbiblical doctrine. Some men, some people honor the man who wrote that track and say he was a great man and they build their buildings to him and there are some on college campuses with his name on them. I say he was a man with a deficient gospel. So perhaps it's enough that you burn the head of the animal or the hooves. That's enough. That's what his belief would say. But no, the Bible says we're saved from all sin and if all sins don't need to be repented of, then all sins don't need to be forgiven. If that's true, then we have a sacrifice that Christ or God would never accept. He'll never accept that. So the all-sufficient Savior made a sacrifice for all sins. All those sins that we commit and for the nature out of which those sins arise. So we don't want to take a Savior that's less than what God says He is. He paid for the sins of His people. And He doesn't fail to deliver each and every one of his people. Blessed be God for Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we look into your word and we see this great picture of atonement, sacrifice, expiation, propitiation. It takes all of this. Guilt taken away, forgiveness of sins, God satisfied, the wrath of God taken away, justification, sanctification. It takes all of this for us to be reconciled to you. Father, we thank you for Jesus Christ who did that for us. And though we've taken a bit of time this evening to delve into some things that perhaps most people wouldn't talk about or don't see or don't care to know, uh, if we're going to understand what you did for us and understand salvation in a better way, then we need to know why this is written in the Word of God. So we thank you for your people, Lord, who come and listen and listen attentively and want to learn what does the Bible say about my salvation? What did Christ do for me? And we don't understand it unless we look at passages like this. Father, help us to understand the Word. Uh, give me clarity in teaching it so that people can understand. Bless your people, Lord. We thank you for each and every one who comes to hear the Word of God preached. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to this presentation of the Berean Baptist Church of Rohnert Park, California. If you would like further information about our church, please feel free to call us at area code 707-584-7275 or write to us at Berean Baptist Church, 6298 Country Club Drive, Ronert Park, California, 94928. Additionally, you may visit us on the World Wide Web at www.bebaptist.org.